Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to this weekly Torah study from New Beginnings Church in Bedford, Texas, taught by Pastor Scott Sigmund. We pray this message will help you better understand how God's Old Testament wisdom and New Testament revelation are meant to jointly fit together. So today we're in Torah study number 21, the parashah, the Torah portion, uh, in Exodus 30 through Exodus 34. And uh, I've entitled today's uh, teaching, What Does the Bible Say About God's Mercy? What does the Torah say about the mercies of God? And uh, it's a perfect time to get into talking about this because this is the teaching that uh, includes the debacle of the golden calf. Sin doesn't get much crazier than the golden calf. Uh, and uh, But even more importantly uh, uh, is how God responded to the sin of the golden calf. And uh, as uh, we know, or maybe you forgot, but God responded with uh, mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy me. And so uh, that's why we're going to talk a little bit today about the mercies of God. There is a appropriate axiom that I learned way back in Bible college. This week uh, we got uh, saved on... Uh, March 11th, 1984, so in a couple days, it'll be our, like, 37th, 1984, do the math, I think 37 years of living for the Lord, amen? And uh, when I got saved, I immediately enrolled into Bible college. Uh, I wasn't looking for a crutch. I was looking for revelation knowledge. Teach me, teach me, teach me. And and it's good to never lose that hunger, never lose that thirst to learn the word. But the old axiom there is teaches that grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is getting, is not getting what you do deserve. And so the sin of the golden calf, the wages of sin is death, Israel deserved the book thrown at them. But instead of uh, getting what they deserved, they, uh, they didn't get what they did deserve. And that's what mercy is all about. And so we're going to delve into that today, uh, into why Israel uh, didn't get what they deserved and why. And it's all based on God revealing himself in this study as a God of mercy. And we'll get into this in a few minutes on the 13 attributes of mercy that God revealed himself in uh, Exodus 34. Uh, But aren't you glad that the Bible says that God's mercies are fresh every day? Amen. And so that means every day, even though you may deserve the book thrown at you, God deals with you in the courtroom of justice with great leniency. God is not uh, willing that any should perish, that anybody should go through pain and suffering, but that all would come to what? A knowledge of the truth. And the truth is God is a loving God. And his mercy endures forever. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so it's in an interesting. Faithfulness is connected to mercy. And so Psalm 86.5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Are you calling upon the Lord and asking for an outpouring of mercy? Come on, somebody. Deuteronomy 4.31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. And that, uh, in that scripture, we'll get, if we have time, we'll get to that. You've heard Pastor talk about Zehut, the merit, the merit of the fathers is revealed in Deuteronomy 4.31, and it comes up in this week's study. Proverbs 28.13, he who covers his sin will not prosper. And I think prosper is a widespread definition. But whoever confesses and forsakes them, sin will have mercy. Thank God for his mercy. And what happened with the sin of the golden calf is one of the, the key examples in the whole Bible of not only uh, the seriousness of sin and how God addresses that, but also uh, the um, also the uh, the mercy of God in that He wasn't looking to punish Israel, uh, but He was looking to restore a broken relationship. How many of you have learned the scripture from First John one nine? It says, "If we confess our sins." He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not just getting the forgiveness. We take that and receive that and shout hallelujah. But there's also a transformational process that God wants to take us through so that there's a cleansing. There's a sense of holiness and purity in our lives that we're attaining to. Now, no one's walking on water, and we all have work to do, but we're on our way. That's the sincere desire of our heart, right? So thank God he's rich in mercy. Uh, and, And that's even though that the fact remains that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in reality, no one is able to be in the position to cast the first stone. So when we're thinking about Israel, when we're thinking about our family, when we're thinking about our relationships, uh, don't get into the rock-throwing ministry. Look first at what's going on in your own life. We judge others by their actions, but we usually judge ourselves by our intentions. So let's not do that. But we also need to be aware of the work of the devil who's trying to lead us into sinfulness and uh, away from being transformed. If the devil can keep us weak, 
keep us involved in a sinful lifestyle and always acting out in sinful ways, then we're in His snare and can never fulfill the purposes of God. Big sin, small sin, it's all sin. And we need a Redeemer to uh, cleanse us and restore us and keep us on the right uh, path. Amen? Uh, I was... uh, uh, putting these notes together, I, I thought about Genesis 4. And in Genesis 4, verse 7, this is the story of God dealing with Cain and Abel. And God told Cain, uh, he said, you will be accepted, Cain, if you do what's right. Learn to do what's right, and then I'll accept you. But if you refuse to do what's right, there's a choice involved there. If you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Amen. So even way back uh, in the earliest uh, Bible times, God is saying there's a level of dominion that God's people have over sin. Sin is always ready to pounce. Sin is always ready to get in. And with Israel, you how on earth Israel, after all the miracles, after everything you saw uh, God do, how do you find yourself in idolatry, in sinfulness, in immorality? What the heck is going on out there? <clears throat> but sin... Uh, Being at the door, ready to pounce, is true for every individual. And it's also true for nations. Right? Immorality, corruption, all kinds of fraud, all kinds of ungodly behavior are ready to pounce on even a nation that declares itself one nation under God. And the last thing we want to do is open the door ourselves to our family on the individual level or as a nation elect and appoint people that will open the door for the forces of evil to come in and ruin our testimony of being one nation under God. So Israel was exposed to this kind of attack Right after a supernatural encounter. And, uh, and so this tells us, yes, we want the supernatural encounter. And on Sunday morning, we're in the service, the pastor's preaching, the praise and worship is going on, we feel strong, and uh, we feel like we uh, are able to subdue anything and conquer it through the, the Holy Ghost, the promises of the Word of God, and the feelings that we're feeling. But on Monday, sometimes it can feel different than Sunday because Brandon and the choir, they're not following you around everywhere. So we can't rely solely on feeling. We have to have something more than feelings. We have to have the Word of God. And we have to build that reservoir of truth 
in our spirit so that we begin to mortify the works of the flesh. We begin to harden ourselves against that evil and sinful behavior. And believe that's a journey. It doesn't happen with, bam, I was at the altar call, bam, it happened. Well, that's the start of it happening. But now we're on a lifelong journey, an adventure called Christianity, where we learn to be more Christ-like. That's why it's best. the best policy is when the church doors fly open, I fly in. But it's easy, so it's easy to read about the golden calf and think, well, look, if it was me, there's no way I'd be stupid enough to worship a golden cow. But in reality, Israel did, and in America today, in churches today, the reality is people are doing this. They're, they're not worshiping a image of a cow, but they're worshiping doctrines and philosophies that have nothing to do with the Word of God. Pastors and church leaders uh, that are supposed to represent God and His Word are modified. Let me improve. They think I can improve on how you should think about the cultural things in our society. And this is one of the birth pangs that is going to happen and indeed is happening just before the return of the Messiah. In 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, Let no man, let no one in any way deceive or entrap you. For that day, what day? Judgment day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That is the great rebellion, the abandonment of the faith by professed Christians, the Amplified says. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, the one who is destined to be destroyed. So one of the birth pangs, we're in the last days, Jesus is coming soon. Will I find faith on the earth? Will men and women live for me with a, a, a loyalty and a conviction that God's word is true no matter what the government says? Or no matter what the world council of churches might say? The mercies of God were meant... Uh, uh, we're never meant to replace living a holy life. We can't say, well, I have the grace of God, the mercies of God, so I can do anything I want, and then God will forgive me, and I just, ah, <laughs> that's a slippery slope, my friend. Have you ever heard about skating on thin ice? <clears throat> so many will fall away. There'll be an apostasy and a rebellion uh, against the things of God by professed Christians. Right? We can have a form of godliness, but we, we better not deny the power of God. Right? And that's what the definition, when people do that, they're defining themselves as non-believing believers. How can you, if you go to church and don't believe the Bible 
and what God says about morality, what God says about uh, living a holy life, then you might be in the category of a non-believing believer. I believe there is a God. Well, I don't know if it, do you mean big G or little G. Do you mean golden calf God? Or do you mean God Almighty who said, uh, uh, I am the Lord thy God, do not bow your knee to any idol, don't make any graven image, don't take my name in vain, and on and on and on. Even in the church, and this is why this apostasy happens, uh, uh, many church leaders uh, are taught that once you're saved, if you make any effort to live holy and godly, you're negating the grace and mercy of God. What the heck are you teaching, pal? You need to go back to Bible college, get filled with the Holy Ghost, and realize, be ye holy as I am holy, as the Apostle Peter said. Some church leaders are uh, coming out against following the Ten Commandments. I've heard this myself on TV. Watching Christian television, I'm watching a non-believing believer preach against the Ten Commandments. As if somehow that negates the grace of God. They completely miss the irony that what they're teaching is exactly what the Antichrist crowd is teaching. There is no God. And there are no godly guidelines and standards. If it feels good, do it. And what do we get out of that? Social chaos. The mercies of God were never meant to replace uh, standing against lawlessness. Well, I'm saved. I got mine. What do you want me to do? Stand against lawlessness. Just because you have God's grace and mercy working in you doesn't mean that uh, you're not called to rise up and stand against the darkness and the evil. Pierce the darkness. Resist the devil. But it, it makes you wonder, how could the majority of Israel remain silent while the sin of the golden calf has taken place right before their very eyes? Did they think, well, I'm just an innocent bystander. If I close my eyes, it'll go away. Well, I'm not actually the one participating in it, so really it won't affect me personally. The fact is, is what Israel was witnessing should have been so outrageous, so ungodly, that the majority should have went from being the silent majority to rising up and accepting some level of spiritual responsibility and protest the insanity. And one reason is, is that uh, God would hold the whole nation responsible, not just, well, that's Moses' fault. You know, Ted Cruz should have done something. <laughs> Why didn't Mitch McConnell do something? <clears throat> God wasn't looking for silence or for us to fall back on excuses He's looking for us to rise up and resist the devil. And that's what will bring forth a level of mercy and forgiveness, right? 
American Christians, especially pastors, need to verbalize this lesson. Because America hangs in the balance. The Antichrist is, uh, the spirit of Antichrist is working. Shutting down churches due to a virus. Did anybody know that that was a violation against God and the Constitution? Bible speech is not hate speech. And trying to censor and cancel the Christian voice goes against God and it goes against the first commandment. I mean the first amendment. Standing by while leaders enact anti-Israel BDS policies. We've now started once again paying terrorists for killing Jews. Remember the Taylor Forsack. Well, all of that is being uh, turned upside down, and now the money's flowing again. So kill a Jew, you're set for life. How do we support terrorist states that say death to Israel, death to America? Well, here's a pallet full of cash. Go do what you're going to do, and uh, hopefully that will pacify you, and you'll be nice to us. That's not a policy, that's appeasement. Using our educational system to indoctrinate children that our country is racist. To reject God's plan of male and female. I have created male and female. There's not 32 different genders. Somebody say that. Why all of a sudden has Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for America been silenced and canceled? Where are all the leaders today invoking Dr. King's vision that we're not going to judge people by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character? Now all of a sudden they're canceling Dr. King as a sellout. Somebody needs to say something. See something? Say something. You know, it's not a coincidence that uh, today's prophetic reading, which is called the Haftorah, there's always the Torah port, and then there's a prophetic reading, is all out of uh, uh, 1 Kings and Elijah's epic showdown against the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. We usually just think of the prophets of Baal. It's the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth over 800 to 1. Those were the odds. Elijah on one side, 800 of the, the, uh, the uh, pagan prophets on the other side. And it wasn't a fair fight because you and God are a majority. <laughs> Hallelujah. You and the Holy Ghost are a majority. There are more with us than there is with them. But what did, what did Elijah show? In that he showed some courage, he showed some backbone, he showed some boldness. Well, why do y'all want to talk about all of this stuff in church? Because God talks about all this stuff. 
And so even in church, there's a debate. Well, we shouldn't be talking about political things and all this uh, antichrist stuff. No, we should be talking about it. So that we can rise up in the spirit of boldness with the spirit of faith and courage and push back against the evil. Some of that we do in prayer, some of that we do in the voting booth, some of that we do by calling our uh, congressman and senator. Have you ever sent them something saying, I don't like what's going on right now? Have you ever done that, do that? And sometimes you have to do that, in, uh, hopefully not at Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, that, that should be, let's just all get along. <laughs> But there are other times when people say crazy things and you need to, Holy Spirit, give me the words to say to counter that. Amen. And the reason why is because uh, we need to overcome the strategies of the enemy. Amen. So uh, God loves us. And he wants to touch us with his mercy. Amen. And it turns out that it was Moses' prayer in Exodus 32. It was his intercession that ushered in the mercies of God. Amen. Well, what can my prayer do? Well, God use Moses' prayer. He'll use your prayer. The weapons of our warfare are uh, not carnal. They are mighty through God. Supernatural weapons of prayer. It works. Amen. And in Exodus 32, 9, it says that uh, the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. That doesn't sound like a merciful God. And so Moses appeals to the Lord to be merciful and compassionate instead of judging Israel, throwing the book at them, and sending them into the abyss. And in verse 12 it says, Moses said to the Lord, Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. And here's where he he invokes Zehut, the merit of the fathers. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself to them with an oath saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I'll give them all of this land, I promise, and they will possess it forever. So when Moses put him in remembrance of his covenant, all of a sudden it says in verse 14, the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring upon his people. So I got to thinking about this. That doesn't sound like a merciful God. So what's going on here? Because why would God want to... It doesn't mean like God forgot his covenant. Oh, God had a, he should have tied a string on his finger. He should have had an elephant in heaven to remind him that, that he made a cup. No, God didn't forget. And so I'm wondering if this was Moses' faith and character being tested. 
What if Moses had agreed with God and said, Oh, I agree with you, Lord. These people are despicable. They're nothing but a bunch of ungrateful slobs. They deserve to be punished with hell, fire, and brimstone, just like you did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Bring down the fire! I mean, he had that choice, right? He could have chosen to agree with God. So I'm thinking it, it was more of a test on what is Mo and how can I help Moses rise to a new level of leadership and, and character in representing me. Let's see what he'll say. I thought about uh, in uh, Luke 9 when uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted Jesus to call down fire on those that disagreed with Jesus. And they said, "And Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So, I mean, it's telling us that there's, there's a part of our Christian nature that uh, wants, I want to see them judged. Judge them, Lord. But Jesus rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Luke 9, 54. So it wasn't like Jesus remembered this, but God forgot it back in Exodus. So I'm wondering, is this a test of care? And does our character get tested like that? Right? Thanks be to God, Moses responded with love and compassion and, and forgiveness and a level-headedness. And if it was a test, which I'm thinking it was, but, you know, there's room to argue that. But if it was a test, I say Moses passed that test with some flying colors. Amen? And we just need that kind of discernment. When to apply the heat and when to apply the love. And sometimes the heat is the love. Tough love. Sometimes no is a good thing. And for uh, any new parents, where's my daughter? Uh, No sometimes is a complete sentence. (laughs) When you're raising up kids. Now what happens next in all of this is that God responds to Moses in a very powerful way. And he reveals himself to Moses because Moses is interceding. And at some point he says, well, God, uh, I don't understand all of this. So show me the revelation. Show me your glory. And God reveals himself with what are known as the 13 attributes of mercy. And uh, we don't get into that much in Christianity because, you know, Christianity, the normal traditional theology, is in the Old Testament, God is mad at everybody, and then when Jesus came, he brought love, and there wasn't any love until Jesus came. Wrong, 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 wrong. And here's uh, proof of that. Uh, 
the ancient wisdom teaches that God was ready to show Moses at this juncture uh, as much of his goodness as he possibly could. How do I show Moses and by extension Israel that despite their failure, their mistake, their sin, which was about as bad as it can get, I'm still going to love you, I'm going to forgive you, I'm going to respond to your call for mercy and, uh, uh, and forgiveness. And so uh, he showed Moses that there's a, there's a side of me, Moses, that you need to know and know real well. That I have a height and a width and a depth and a breadth of love that you can never fully understand. It's like there's an unlimited flow of mercy that comes from the throne of God. And even if you don't have any merit or standing, in other words, you got nothing to show for your life, God will still be merciful. We'll get into that in just a minute. So here in Exodus, Exodus 34, the Lord lays out this grand, all-encompassing list of divine attributes, 13 attributes of mercy to assure Moses, to assure Israel, and 3,400 years later to assure you and I that I am above all the very essence of who I am is a God of love and mercy. Amen. Amen. I take great comfort in knowing... If you understood a little of my background, maybe you have a, a, a real ugly background. Some of you were like Clint Eastwood, you were good. <clears throat> some of you were bad, and some of you were flat out ugly. I was the bad and the ugly part. But I learned along the way, and really from that very first altar call, and then through studying lessons like this, that God's mercy is bigger than any mistake we could ever make. Isn't that God's love, God's forgiveness, God's mercy is bigger than any mistake that we could ever make. And when it comes to things like the golden calf, I mean, come on, man, just 40 days earlier, look at what you experienced. God spoke to a nation, over 2 million people heard, and it says, saw the things of God and the revelation, and all of a sudden, 40 days later, you're worshiping a cow. But God's mercy overcame judgment. Amen. So what are these 13 attributes in Exodus 34? And it's in verse 6 and 7. The, the rabbis, we're going to uh, give you this list in the last few minutes. The rabbis teach that God gave these so that they would not just be for the moment, but they would be for all time, for future generations. And that's why in Judaism, they pray these 13 attributes every day. It's part of the daily prayers. And uh, it was even through tradition and through this teaching that God said, whenever you're faced with an impossible situation or a catastrophe, 
of behavior or events in, in, in an individual or a nation, you should invoke these 13 attributes. And this is all part of put me in remembrance of my word. Have you, you remember that scripture in Isaiah 43, 25? I am the Lord that blots out your offenses. I will remember your sins no more. Remind me when we're in court together. Tell your side and make the case that you're right. Well, the case that you're making is probably not because you're so righteous and holy, but it's because you've been made that, and you can invoke those attributes and remind God of the kind of God He is, and it just stirs up the right things. So, God said He will do this for His own sake. And I I just am running out of time, so I won't have to uh, have time to teach all of this on Zehut. But um, God said, I'm going to intervene in your situation, not for yours, but for my sake. It's by my own merit that I am going to intervene, not based on anything you have done, but for my own sake. I love you that much that by my own word, for my own sake, I'm going to make sure I cover you with mercy. And I got to thinking about this. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. You know, why is it that we always, in the name of Jesus, in the name, in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, what we're invoking is by the merit of what Jesus has done. I pray that you would bless me or deliver me or this, that, or the other thing. And so it's in the merit of Jesus which is the name above all names and all that it represents. And so this is kind of that teaching on the merit of, remember what you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Jesus' name. Remember what you promised through Jesus. And so for his own sake, okay, I'll honor that. It's nice to know that kind of stuff. And this is what Moses was doing when he was interceding. He's saying, remember all of this, Lord. And so, in effect, what he was saying, that whatever merit, and when we pray in the name, whatever merit Jesus has received, let that be applied to my account. Let that come into my life, my family's life, my nation, and bring healing and deliverance and salvation on his account. Based on his merit. So Moses was uh, praying all this and involved with all of this. Wouldn't you have loved to have been the fly on the wall to see all of that going down? But God reveals these 13 descriptions of mercy. And to this day, they're recited in uh, daily Jewish prayer. And uh, I'm going to read the verse... In the uh, the Hebrew translation that says, Hashem, Hashem, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundance in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgive, forgiver of iniquity, willful sin and error, and who cleanses. 
and we're going to go through that here in the last uh, few minutes. Um, there's uh, when you study this in uh, ancient Jewish wisdom, there's some definitions behind each of these words and revelations. And the first uh, Hashem uh, denotes God's characteristic of mercy. Hashem, God of mercy. And it says in ancient teaching that God is merciful before a person sins. Because of what we said earlier, God knows sin lies at the door. It's waiting to pounce. And he knows that the evil inclination side, our fleshly side, will always end up trying to divert back to the sinful behavior. Many of those things, what you and I might have been involved with before Christ. But nonetheless, God's saying, even before you committed the sin, I'm merciful. And it ties into Christ loved us while we were what? Yet sinners. The second Hashem uh, says that God is merciful even after someone sins, or, or be, so before and after. And then God, Elohim, signifies God's incredible power and means here that His mercy is so great, so awesome, that it even surpasses the kindness and compassion that he just talked about in the first two uh, uh, meanings, Hashem, Hashem. So that talks about the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the, the love, the kindness, the forgiveness of God. Then it talks about compassionate, that God always believes the best in us. I need that lesson because it's so easy for me not to see the best. Judging people instead of loving people. And there's a time for tough love, but, you know, we probably need to be 90% on the love part and 10% on the tough part. He's always patient and long-suffering is our compassionate God. And he's not uh, rushing to judgment, ready to punish us for being guilty. Number five, it talks about graciousness. Our God has a loving kindness even for the undeserving. Your mercy is getting, not getting what you do deserve. You're not getting what you do deserve. And that's what gracious speaks of. He's, he will come in and save people from the agony of sin even after it's overtaken them. Which means that if you've lived a lifestyle of sinfulness and you come to the Lord in sincere repentance, that God will restore the years that all of the, the things that the devil has, he will restore that. Amen. Slow to anger. God has a level of patience and tolerance that we can't even understand. Even a thousand years later, he's patient. So instead of immediate judgment, he gives sinners plenty of opportunity to reflect on things, repent over some things, and work towards uh, improving some things. Amen? Amen. 
Number seven, abundant in kindness, even towards those that don't have any merit. You haven't done anything. You good for nothing. No, see, there's the human side. God doesn't think of you as good for nothing. Even though you haven't done anything, when it was all said and done, there was a lot more said than done. But if you don't have any personal merits, for his own sake, he will cover you. Number eight, truth. He never reneges on his word to reward those who serve him. I am a God that loves you, and I will reward those that diligently seek me. Number nine, a preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. That's the Zehut. That what you're doing right now in Torah study, serving God in church and living a godly, moral, righteous life will pass down to your kids. What I'm doing will pass down to my grandson. Why should I live a godly, holy, why should I resist the devil? Why should I fight back and push back against temptation and ungodliness? Because there's a way that that will pass on from a thousand generations, starting with my grandson. Zehut, the merits of your life will pass down. Number 10, forgiver of iniquity. Even if you intentionally sin. If you repent, God will forgive you. Number 11, willful sin. Even if you are mad at God and want to teach God a lesson, I'll show God, I'm going to go out and do this stupid thing, God still allows you to repent. Number 12, in error. This is a sin committed out of carelessness or apathy. That you just live a risky casual Christian life and you're out there doing risky things, God will still forgive you. And number 13, and who cleanses, God will wipe away the stain of every sin if we come before him and sincerely repent. Amen. So we need to, as Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Amen. Let's live that today and be merciful, compassionate, and, uh, and just uh, be patient and good with people in Jesus' name. Do you receive that today? If you do, give the Lord a praise. God bless you. Amen.